CD4 He'd reached the end of the corridor. There was the door into the kitchen where Albert would be leering knowingly, and Mort decided he couldn't face that. He stopped. But I only took the books for a bit of company, she said, behind him. He gave in. We could have a walk in the garden, he said in despair, and then managed to harden his heart a little and added, without obligation, that is. You mean you're not going to marry me, she said. Mort was horrified. Marry? Isn't that what father brought you here for, she said. He doesn't need an apprentice, after all. You mean all those nudges and winks and little comments about some day my son all this will be yours, said Mort. I tried to ignore them. I don't want to get married to anyone yet, he added, suppressing a fleeting mental picture of the princess. And certainly not to you, no offence meant. I wouldn't marry you if you were the last man on the disc, she said sweetly. Mort was hurt by this. It was one thing not to want to marry someone, but quite another to be told that they didn't want to marry you. At least I don't look like I've been eating doughnuts in a wardrobe for years, he said, as they stepped out onto Death's back lawn. At least I walk as if my legs only had one knee each, she said. My eyes aren't two jerkly poached eggs. Isabel nodded. On the other hand, my ears don't look like something growing on a dead tree. What does jergly mean? You know, eggs like Albert does them. With the white all sticky and runny and full of slimy bits? Yes. Good word, she conceded thoughtfully. But my hair, I put it to you, doesn't look like something you clean a privy with. Certainly, but neither does mine look like a wet hedgehog. Pray note that my chest does not appear to be a toast rack in a wet paper bag. Mort glanced sideways at the top of Isabel's dress, which contained enough puppy fat for two litters of Rottweilers, and forbore to comment. My eyebrows don't look like a pair of mating caterpillars, he hazarded. True, but my legs, I suggest, could at least stop a pig in a passageway. Sorry? They're not bandy, she explained. Ah! They strolled through the lily beds, temporarily lost for words. Eventually, Isabel confronted Mort and stuck out her hand. He shook it in thankful silence. Enough, she said. Just about. Good. Obviously, we shouldn't get married, if only for the sake of the children. Mort nodded. They sat down on a stone seat between some neatly clipped box hedges. Death had made a pond in this corner of the garden, fed by an icy spring that appeared to be vomited into the pool by a stone lion. Fat white carp lurked in the depths or nosed on the surface among the velvety black water lilies. We should have brought some breadcrumbs, said Mort gallantly, opting for a totally non-controversial subject. He never comes out here, you know, said Isabel, watching the fish. He made it to keep me amused. It didn't work. It's not real, she said. Nothing's real here, not really real. He just likes to act like a human being. He's trying really hard at the moment. Have you noticed? I think you're having an effect on him. Did you know he tried to learn the banjo once? I see him as more the organ type. He couldn't get the hang of it, said Isabel, ignoring him. He can't create, you see. You said he created this pool. It's a copy of one he saw somewhere. Everything's a copy. Mort shifted uneasily. Some small insect had crawled up his leg. It's rather sad, he said, hoping that this was approximately the right tone to adopt. Yes. 
She scooped a handful of gravel from the path and began to flick it absent-mindedly into the pool. Are my eyebrows that bad? she said. Um, said Mort. Afraid so. Oh. Flick. Flick. The carp were watching her disdainfully. And my legs, he said. Yes. Sorry. Mort shuffled anxiously through his limited repertoire of small talk and gave up. Never mind, he said gallantly. At least you can use tweezers. He's very kind, said Isabel, ignoring him, in a sort of absent-minded way. He's not exactly your real father, is he? My parents were killed crossing the Great Neff years ago. There was a storm, I think. He found me and brought me here. I don't know why he did it. Perhaps he felt sorry for you. He never feels anything. I don't mean that nastily, you understand. It's just that he's got nothing to feel with. No whatchacallits, no glands. He probably thought sorry for me. She turned her pale face round towards Mort. I won't hear a word against him. He tries to do his best. It's just that he's always got so much to think about. My father was a bit like that. Is, I mean. I expect he's got glands, though. I imagine he has, said Mort, shifting uneasily. It's not something I've ever really thought about. Glands? They stared side by side at the trout. The trout stared back. I've just upset the entire history of the future, said Mort. Oh, yes. You see, when he tried to kill her, I killed him. But the thing is, according to the history, she should have died and the Duke would be king. But the worst bit, the worst bit, is that although he's absolutely rotten to the core, he'd unite the cities and eventually they'll be a federation and the books say there'll be a hundred years of peace and plenty. I mean... You'd think there'd be a reign of terror or something, but apparently history needs this kind of person sometimes, and the princess would be just another monarch. I mean, not bad, quite good really, but just not right. And now it's not going to happen, and history is flapping around loose, and it's all my fault. He subsided, anxiously awaiting her reply. You were right, you know. I was. We ought to have brought some breadcrumbs, she said. I suppose they find things to eat in the water, beetles and so on. Did you hear what I said? What about? Oh, nothing. Nothing much, really. Sorry. Isabel sighed and stood up. I expect you'll be wanting to get off, she said. I'm glad we got this marriage business sorted out. It was quite nice talking to you. We could have a sort of hate-hate relationship, said Mort. I don't normally get to talk with the people father works with. She appeared to be unable to draw herself away, as though she was waiting for Mort to say something else. Well, you wouldn't, was all he could think of. I expect you've got to go off to work now. More or less, Mort hesitated, aware that in some indefinable way the conversation had drifted out of the shallows and was now floating over some deep bits he didn't quite understand. There was a noise like... It made Mort recall the old yard at home with a pang of homesickness. During the harsh ram-top winters, the family kept hardy mountain Tharga beasts in the yard, chucking in straw as necessary. After the spring thaw, the yard was several feet deep and had quite a solid crust on it. You could walk across it if you were careful. If you weren't, and sank knee-deep in the concentrated gippo, then the sound your boot made as it came out, green and steaming, was as much the sound of the turning year as birdsong and bee buzz. 
It was that noise. Mort instinctively examined his shoes. Isabel was crying. Not in little ladylike sobs, but in great yawning gulps, like bubbles from an underwater volcano, fighting one another to be the first to the surface. They were sobs escaping under pressure, matured in humdrum misery. Mort said, Er... Her body was shaking like a waterbed in an earthquake zone. She fumbled urgently in her sleeves for the handkerchief, but it was no more use in the circumstances than a paper hat in a thunderstorm. She tried to say something which became a stream of consonants punctuated by sobs. Mort said, Um... Said, how old do you think I am? Fifteen, he hazarded. Um, sixteen, she wailed. Do you know how long I've been sixteen for? I'm sorry, I don't understand. No, you wouldn't. No one would. She blew her nose again, and despite her shaking hands, nevertheless carefully tucked the rather damp hanky back up her sleeve. You're allowed out, she said. You haven't been here long enough to notice. Time stands still here, haven't you noticed? Oh, something passes, but it's not real time. He can't create real time. Oh. When she spoke again, it was in the thin, careful, and above all, brave voice of someone who has pulled themselves together despite overwhelming odds, but might let go again at any moment. I've been sixteen for thirty-five years. Oh. It was bad enough the first year. Mort looked back at his last few weeks and nodded in sympathy. Is that why you've been reading all those books, he said. Isabel looked down and twiddled a sandaled toe in the gravel in an embarrassed fashion. They're very romantic, she said. There's some really lovely stories. There was this girl who drank poison when her young man had died, and there was one who jumped off a cliff because her father insisted she should marry this old man, and another one drowned herself rather than submit to... Mort listened in astonishment. To judge by Isabel's careful choice of reading matter... It was a matter of note for any disc female to survive adolescence long enough to wear out a pair of stockings. And then she thought he was dead, and she killed herself, and then he woke up, and so he did kill himself. And then there was this girl... Common sense suggested that at least a few women reached their third decade without killing themselves for love, but common sense didn't seem to get even a walk-on part in these dramas. The disc's greatest lovers were undoubtedly Melius and Gretelina, whose pure, passionate and soul-searing affair would have scorched the pages of history if they had not, because of some unexplained quirk of fate, been born two hundred years apart on different continents. However, the gods took pity on them and turned him into an ironing board and her into a small brass bollard. When you're a god, you don't have to have reasons. Mort was already aware that love made you feel hot and cold and cruel and weak, but he hadn't realised that it could make you stupid. Swam the river every night, but one night there was this storm, and when he didn't arrive, she... Mort felt instinctively that some young couples met, say, at a village dance, and hit it off, and went out together for a year or two, and had a few rows, made up, got married, and didn't kill themselves at all. He became aware that the litany of star-crossed love had wound down. Oh, he said weakly, doesn't anyone just, you know, just get along any more? To love is to suffer, said Isabel. There's got to be lots of dark passion. Has there? Absolutely. And anguish. Isabel appeared to recall something. 
Did you say something about something flapping around loose, she said, in the tight voice of someone pulling themselves together? Mort considered. No, he said. I'm afraid I wasn't paying much attention. It doesn't matter at all. They strolled back to the house in silence. When Mort went back to the study, he found that death had gone, leaving four hourglasses on the desk. The big leather book was lying on a lectern, securely locked shut. There was a note tucked under the glasses. Mort had imagined that death's handwriting would either be gothic or else tombstone angular, but death had in fact studied a classic work on graphology before selecting a style and had adopted a hand that indicated a balanced, well-adjusted personality. It said, Gone fishing. There is an execution in Pseudopolis, a natural in Kroll, a fatal fall in the Carrick Mountains, one ague in El Quinte, the rest of the days your own. Mort thought that history was thrashing around like a steel hawser with the tension off, twanging backwards and forwards across reality in great destructive sweeps. History isn't like that. History unravels gently, like an old sweater. It has been patched and darned many times, re-knitted to suit different people, shoved in a box under the sink of censorship to be cut up for the dusters of propaganda, yet it always, eventually, manages to spring back into its old familiar shape. History has a habit of changing the people who think they are changing it. History always has a few tricks up its frayed sleeve. It's been around a long time. This is what was happening. The misplaced stroke of Mort's scythe had cut history into two separate realities. In the city of Stolart, Princess Kelly still ruled with a certain amount of difficulty and with the full-time aid of the royal recogniser, who was put on the court payroll and charged with the duty of remembering that she existed. In the lands outside, though, beyond the plain, in the ram tops, around the Circle Sea, and all the way to the rim, the traditional reality still held sway, and she was quite definitely dead. The Duke was king, and the world was proceeding sedately according to plan, whatever that was. The point is that both realities were true. The sort of historical event horizon was currently about twenty miles away from the city, and wasn't yet very noticeable. That's because the, well, call it the difference in historical pressures, wasn't yet very great, but it was growing. Out in the damp cabbage fields there was a shimmer in the air and a faint sizzle, like frying grasshoppers. People don't alter history any more than birds alter the sky. They just make brief patterns in it. Inch by inch, implacable as a glacier and far colder, the real reality was grinding back towards Stowe Lart. Mort was the first person to notice. It had been a long afternoon. The mountaineer had held on to his icy handhold until the last moment, and the executee had called Mort a lackey of the monarchist state. Only the old lady of 103, who'd gone to her reward surrounded by her sorrowing relatives, had smiled at him and said he was looking a little pale. The disc sun was close to the horizon by the time Binky cantered wearily through the skies over Stolat, and Mort looked down and saw the borderland of reality. It curved away below him, a crescent of faint silver mist. He didn't know what it was, but he had a nasty foreboding that it had something to do with him. He reined in the horse and allowed him to trot gently towards the ground, touching down a few yards behind the wall of iridescent air. It was moving at something less than walking pace, hissing gently as it drifted ghost-like across the stark, damp cabbage fields and frozen drainage ditches. It was a cold night, 
the type of night when frost and fog fight for domination and every sound is muffled. Binky's breath made fountains of cloud in the still air. He whinnied gently, almost apologetically, and poured at the ground. Mort slid out of the saddle and crept up to the interface. It crackled softly. Weird shapes coruscated across it, flowing and shifting and disappearing. After some searching, he found a stick and poked it cautiously into the wall. It made strange ripples that wobbled slowly out of sight. Mort looked up as a shape drifted overhead. It was a black owl patrolling the ditches for anything small and squeaky. It hit the wall with a splash of sparkling mist, leaving an owl-shaped ripple that grew and spread until it joined the boiling kaleidoscope. Then it vanished. Mort could see through the transparent interface, and certainly no owl reappeared on the other side. Just as he was puzzling over this, there was another soundless splash a few feet away, and the bird burst into view again, totally unconcerned, and skimmed away across the fields. Mort pulled himself together and stepped through the barrier which was no barrier at all. It tingled. A moment later, Binky burst through after him, eyes rolling in desperation and tendrils of interface catching on his hooves. He reared up, shaking his mane like a dog to remove clinging fibres of mist, and looked at Mort beseechingly. Mort caught his bridle, patted him on the nose, and fumbled in his pocket for a rather grubby sugar lump. He was aware that he was in the presence of something important, but he wasn't yet quite sure what it was. There was a road running between an avenue of damp and gloomy willow trees. Mort remounted and steered Binky across the field into the dripping darkness under the branches. In the distance he could see the lights of Stowe Helite, which really wasn't much more than a small town, and a faint glow on the edge of sight must be Stowe Lut. He looked at it longingly. The barrier worried him. He could see it creeping across the field behind the trees. Mort was on the point of urging Binky back into the air when he saw the light immediately ahead of him, warm and beckoning. It was spilling from the windows of a large building set back from the road. It was probably a cheerful sort of light in any case, but in these surroundings and compared with Mort's mood, it was positively ecstatic. As he rode nearer, he saw shadows moving against it and made out a few snatches of song. It was an inn, and inside there were people having a good time, or what passed for a good time if you were a peasant who spent most of your time closely concerned with cabbages. Compared to brassicas, practically anything is fun. There were human beings in there doing uncomplicated human things like getting drunk and forgetting the words of songs. Mort had never really felt homesick, possibly because his mind had been too occupied with other things, but he felt it now for the first time, a sort of longing not for a place, but for a state of mind, for being just an ordinary human being with straightforward things to worry about, like money and sickness and other people. I shall have a drink, he thought, and perhaps I shall feel better. There was an open-fronted stable at one side of the main building, and he led Binky into the warm, horse-smelling darkness that already accommodated three other horses. As Mort unfastened the nosebag, he wondered if Death's horse felt the same way about other horses which had rather less supernatural lifestyles. He certainly looked impressive compared to the others, which regarded him watchfully. Binky was a real horse, the blisters of the shovel handle on Mort's hands were a testimony to that, and compared to the others, he looked more real than ever, more solid, more horsey, slightly larger than life. In fact, Mort was on the verge of making an important deduction, and it is unfortunate that he was distracted as he walked across the yard to the inn's low door, by the sight of the inn sign. Its artist hadn't been particularly gifted, but there was no mistaking the line of Kay Lee's jaw 
or her mass of fiery hair in the portrait of the Queen's head. He sighed and pushed open the door. As one man, the assembled company stopped talking and stared at him with the honest rural stare that suggests that for two pins they'll hit you around the head with a shovel and bury your body under a compost heap at full moon. It might be worth taking another look at Mort, because he's changed a lot in the last few chapters. For example, while he still has plenty of knees and elbows about his person, they seem to have migrated to their normal places, and he no longer moves as though his joints were loosely fastened together with elastic bands. He used to look as if he knew nothing at all. Now he looks as though he knows too much. Something about his eyes suggests that he has seen things that ordinary people never see, or at least never see more than once. Something about all the rest of him suggests to the watchers that causing an inconvenience for this boy might just be as wise as kicking a wasp's nest. In short, Mort no longer looks like something the cat brought in and then brought up. The landlord relaxed his grip on the stout blackthorn peacemaker he kept under the bar and composed his features into something resembling a cheerful, welcoming grin, although not very much. Evening, your lordship, he said. What's your pleasure this cold and frosty night? What? said Mort, blinking in the light. What he means is, what do you want to drink? said a small ferret-faced man sitting by the fire, who was giving Mort the kind of look a butcher gives a field full of lambs. Um, I don't know, said Mort. Do you sell star drip? Never heard of it, lordship. Mort looked around at the faces watching him, illuminated by the firelight. They were the sort of people generally called the salt of the earth. In other words, they were hard, square, and bad for your health. But Mort was too preoccupied to notice. What do you people like to drink here, then? The landlord looked sideways at his customers, a clever trick, given that they were directly in front of him. Why, lordship, we drink scumble for preference. Scumble, said Mort, failing to notice the muffled sniggers. I, lordship, made from apples, well, mainly apples. This seemed healthy enough to Mort. Oh, right, he said. A pint of scumble, then. He reached into his pocket and withdrew the bag of gold that death had given him. It was still quite full. In the sudden hush of the inn, the faint clink of the coins sounded like the legendary brass gongs of Lechp, which can be heard far out to sea on stormy nights as the currents stir them in their drowned towers three hundred fathoms below. And please serve these gentlemen with whatever they want, he added. He was so overwhelmed by the chorus of thanks that he didn't take much notice of the fact that his new friends were served their drink in tiny thimble-sized glasses, while his alone turned up in a large wooden mug. A lot of stories are told about scumble, and how it is made out on the damp marshes according to ancient recipes handed down rather unsteadily from father to son. It's not true about the rats, or the snakeheads, or the lead shot. The one about the dead sheep is a complete fabrication. We can later rest all the variations of the one about the trouser button. But the one about not letting it come into contact with metal is absolutely true, because when the landlord flagrantly short-changed Mort and plonked the small heap of copper in a puddle of the stuff, it immediately began to froth. Mort sniffed his drink and then took a sip. It tasted something like apples, something like autumn mornings, and quite a lot like the bottom of a log pile. Not wishing to appear disrespectful, however, he took a swig. The crowd watched him, counting under its breath. Mort felt something was being demanded of him. Nice, he said. Very refreshing. 
He took another sip. Bit of an acquired taste, he added, but well worth the effort, I'm sure. There were one or two mutters of discontent from the back of the crowd. He's been watering the scumble, that's what tis. Nay, thou knowst what happens if ye lets a drop of water touch scumble. The landlord tried to ignore this. You like it? he said to Mort, in pretty much the same tone of voice people used when they said to St. George, You killed a what? It's quite tangy, said Mort, and sort of nutty. Excuse me, said the landlord, and gently took the mug out of Mort's hand. He sniffed at it, then wiped his eyes. Ugh, he said. It's the right stuff, all right. He looked at the boy with something verging on admiration. It wasn't that he'd drunk a third of a pint of scumble in itself, it was that he was still vertical and apparently alive. He handed the pot back again. It was as if Mort was being given a trophy after some incredible contest. When the boy took another mouthful, several of the watchers winced. The landlord wondered what Mort's teeth were made of and decided it must be the same stuff as his stomach. "'You're not a wizard by any chance?' he inquired, just in case. "'Sorry. No. Should I be?' Didn't think so, thought the landlord. He doesn't walk like a wizard, and anyway, he isn't smoking anything. He looked at the scumble pot again. There was something wrong about this. There was something wrong about the boy. He didn't look right. He looked... more solid than he should do. That was ridiculous, of course. The bar was solid, the floor was solid, the customers were as solid as you could wish for. Yet Mort, standing there looking rather embarrassed and casually sipping a liquid you can clean spoons with, seemed to emit a particularly potent sort of solidness, an extra dimension of realness. His hair was more hairy, his clothes more clothy, his boots the epitome of bootness. It made your head ache just to look at him. However, Mort then demonstrated that he was human after all, the mug dropped from his stricken fingers and clattered on the flagstones, where the dregs of scumble started to eat its way through them. He pointed at the far wall, his mouth opening and shutting wordlessly. The regulars turned back to their conversations and games of shovel-up, reassured that things were as they should be. Mort was acting perfectly normally now. The landlord, relieved that the brew had been vindicated, reached across the bar top and patted him companionably on the shoulder. "'It's all right,' he said. "'It often takes people like this.' You'll just have a headache for a few weeks, don't worry about it. A drop of scumble will see you all right again. It is a fact that the best remedy for a scumble hangover is a hair of the dog, although it should be more accurately called a tooth of the shark, or possibly a tread of the bulldozer. But Mort merely went on pointing, and said in a trembling voice, Can't you see it? It's coming through the wall! It's coming right through the wall! A lot of things come through the wall after your first drink of scumble. <laughs> Green, hairy things, usually. It's the mist. Can't you hear it sizzling? A sizzling mist, is it? The landlord looked at the wall, which was quite empty and unmysterious, except for a few cobwebs. The urgency in Mort's voice unsettled him. He would have preferred the normal scaly monsters. A man knew where he stood with them. It's coming right across the room. Can't you feel it? The customers looked at one another. Mort was making them uneasy. One or two of them admitted later that they did feel something rather like an icy tingle, but it could have been indigestion. Mort backed away and then gripped the bar. He shivered for a moment. Look, said the landlord, a joke's a joke, but... 
You had a green shirt on before. The landlord looked down. There was an edge of terror in his voice. Before what? he quavered. To his astonishment, and before his hand could complete its surreptitious journey towards the blackthorn stick, Mort lunged across the bar and grabbed him by the apron. You've got a green shirt, haven't you? he said. I saw it. It had little yellow buttons. Well, yes, I've got two shirts. The landlord tried to draw himself up a little. I'm a man of means, he added. I just didn't wear it today. He didn't want to know how Mort knew about the buttons. Mort let him go and spun round. They're all sitting in different places. Where's the man who was sitting by the fire? It's all changed. He ran out through the door, and there was a muffled cry from outside. He dashed back, wild-eyed, and confronted the horrified crowd. Who's changed the sign? Someone changed the sign! The landlord nervously ran his tongue across his lips. After the old king died, you mean, he said. Mort's look chilled him. The boy's eyes were two black pools of terror. It's the name, I mean. We've, it's always been the same name, said the man, looking desperately at his customers for support. Isn't that so, lad? The duke's head? There was a murmured chorus of agreement. Mort stared at everyone, visibly shaking. Then he turned and ran outside again. The listeners heard hoofbeats in the yard, which grew fainter and then disappeared entirely, just as though a horse had left the face of the earth. There was no sound inside the inn. Men tried to avoid one another's gaze. No one wanted to be the first to admit to seeing what he thought he had just seen. So it was left to the landlord to walk unsteadily across the room and reach out and run his fingers across the familiar, reassuring wooden surface of the door. It was solid, unbroken, everything a door should be. Everyone had seen Mort run through it three times. He just hadn't opened it. Binky fought for height, rising nearly vertically with his hooves thrashing the air and his breath curling away behind him like a vapour trail. Mort hung on with his knees and hands, and mostly with willpower, his face buried in the horse's mane. He didn't look down until the air around him was freezing and thin as a workhouse gravy. Overhead, the hub lights flickered silently across the winter sky. Below, an upturned saucer miles across, silvery in the starlight. He could see lights through it. Clouds were drifting through it. No. He watched carefully. Clouds were certainly drifting into it, and there were clouds in it. But the clouds inside were wispier and moving in a slightly different direction, and in fact didn't seem to have much to do with the clouds outside. There was something else. Oh yes, the hub lights. They gave the night outside the ghostly hemisphere a faint green tint, but there was no sign of it under the dome. It was like looking into a piece of another world, almost identical, that had been grafted onto the disc. The weather was slightly different in there, and the lights weren't on display tonight. And the disc was resenting it, and surrounding it, and pushing it back into non-existence. Mort couldn't see it growing smaller from up here, but in his mind's ear he could hear the locust sizzle of the thing as it ground across the land, changing things back to where they should be. Reality was healing itself. Mort knew, without even having to think about it, who was at the centre of the dome. It was obvious even from here, but it was centred firmly on Stowe Lutt. He tried not to think what would happen when the dome had shrunk to the size of the room, and then the size of a person, and then the size of an egg. He failed. Logic would have told Mort that here was his salvation. In a day or two the problem would solve itself, the books in the library would be right again, the world would have sprung back into shape like an elastic bandage. Logic would have told him that interfering with the process a second time around would only make things worse. 
Logic would have said all that. If only Logic hadn't taken the night off too. Light travels quite slowly on the disc due to the breaking effect of the huge magical field, and currently that part of the rim carrying the island of Krull was directly under the little sun's orbit, and it was therefore still early evening. It was also quite warm, since the rim picks up more heat and enjoys a gentle maritime climate. In fact, Krull, with a large part of what for want of a better word must be called its coastline, sticking out over the edge, was a fortunate island. The only native Krullians who did not appreciate this were those who didn't look where they were going, or who walked in their sleep, and because of natural selection there weren't very many of them anymore. All societies have their share of dropouts, but on Krull they never had a chance to drop back in again. Terpsic Mims was not a dropout. He was an angler. There is a difference. Angling is more expensive. But Terpsic was happy. He was watching a feather on a cork bob gently on the gentle reed-lined waters of the Hakral River, and his mind was very nearly a blank. The only thing that could have disturbed his mood was actually catching a fish, because catching fish was the one thing about angling that he really dreaded. They were cold and slimy and panicky and got on his nerves, and Terpsic's nerves weren't very good. So long as he caught nothing, Terpsic Mims was one of the disc's happiest anglers, because the Harkrull River was five miles from his home, and therefore five miles from Mrs Gladys Mims, with whom he had enjoyed six happy months of married life. That had been some twenty years previously. Terpsic did not pay undue heed when another angler took up station further along the bank. Of course, some fishermen might have objected to this breach of etiquette, but in Terpsic's book, anything that reduced his chance of actually catching any of the damn things was all right by him. Out of the corner of his eye, he noted that the newcomer was fly-fishing, an interesting pastime which Terpsic had rejected because one spent altogether far too much time at home making the equipment. He had never seen fly-fishing like this before. There were wet flies and there were dry flies, but this fly augured into the water with a saw-toothed whine and dragged the fish out backwards. Terpsic watched in horrified fascination as the indistinct figure behind the willow trees cast and cast again. The water boiled as the river's entire piscine population fought to get out of the way of the buzzing terror, and unfortunately a large and maddened pike took Terpsic's hook out of sheer confusion. One moment he was standing on the bank, and the next he was in a green, clanging gloom, bubbling his breath away and watching his life flash before his eyes, and even in the moment of drowning, dreading the thought of watching the bit between the day of his wedding and the present. It occurred to him that Gladys would soon be a widow, which cheered him up a little bit. In fact, Terpsic had always tried to look on the bright side, and it struck him as he sank gratefully into the silt that from this point on his whole life could only improve and a hand grabbed his hair and dragged him to the surface, which was suddenly full of pain. Ghastly blue and black blotches swam in front of his eyes, his lungs were on fire, his throat was a pipe of agony. Hands, cold hands, freezing hands, hands that felt like a glove full of dice, towed him through the water and threw him down on the bank, where after some game attempts to get on with drowning, he was eventually bullied back into what passed for his life. Terpsic didn't often get angry because Gladys didn't hold with it. But he felt cheated. He'd been born without being consulted. He'd been married because Gladys and her father had seen to it, and the only major human achievement that was uniquely his had been rudely snatched away from him. A few seconds ago it had all been so simple. Now it was all complicated again. Not that he wanted to die, of course. The gods were very firm on the subject of suicide. He just hadn't wanted to be rescued. 
Through red eyes in a mask of slime and duckweed, he peered at the blurred form above him and shouted, Why did you have to save me? The answer worried him. He thought about it as he squelched all the way home. It sat at the back of his mind while Gwiladis complained about the state of his clothes. It squirrelled around in his head as he sat and sneezed guiltily by the fire, because being ill was another thing Gladys didn't hold with. And as he lay shivering in bed, it settled in his dreams like an iceberg. In the midst of his fever, he muttered, What did he mean for later? Torches flared in the city of Stolat. Whole squads of men were charged with the task of constantly renewing them. The streets glowed. The sizzling flames pushed back shadows that had been blamelessly minding their own business every night for centuries. They illuminated ancient corners where the eyes of bewildered rats glittered in the depths of their holes. They forced burglars to stay indoors. They glowed on the night mists, forming a nimbus of yellow light that blotted out the cold high flames streaming from the hub. But mainly, they shone on the face of Princess Kay Lee. It was everywhere. It plastered every flat surface. Binky cantered along the glowing streets between Princess Kaylee on doors, walls and gable ends. Mort gaped at posters of his beloved on every surface where workmen had been able to make paste stick. Even stranger, no one seemed to be paying them much attention. While Stowe Lart's nightlife was not as colourful and full of incident as that of Ankh Morpork, in the same way that a waste paper basket cannot compete with a municipal tip, the streets were nevertheless a bustle with people and shrill with the cries of hucksters, gamblers, sellers of sweetmeats, pea-and-thimble men, ladies of assignation, pickpockets and the occasional honest trader who had wandered in by mistake and couldn't now raise enough money to leave. As Mort rode through them, snatches of conversation in half a dozen languages floated into his ears. With numb acceptance he realised he could understand every one of them. He eventually dismounted and led the horse along Wall Street, searching in vain for Cutwell's house. He found it only because a lump on the nearest poster was making muffled swearing noises. He reached out gingerly and pulled aside a strip of paper. Thanks very much, said the gargoyle door knocker. You wouldn't credit it, would you? One minute life as normal, next minute a mouthful of glue. Where's Cutwell? He's gone off to the palace. The knocker leered at him and winked a cast-iron eye. Some men came and took all his stuff away. Then some other men started pasting pictures of his girlfriend all over the place. Bastards, it added. Mort coloured. His girlfriend? The door-knocker, being of the demonic persuasion, sniggered at his tone. It sounded like fingernails being dragged over a file. Yes, it said. They seemed in a bit of a hurry, if you ask me. Mort was already up on Binky's back. I say, shouted the knocker at his retreating back, I say, could you unstick me, boy? Mort tugged on Binky's rein so hard that the horse reared and danced crazily backwards across the cobbles, then reached out and grabbed the ring of the knocker. The gargoyle looked up into his face and suddenly felt like a very frightened door knocker indeed. Mort's eyes glowed like crucibles, his expression was a furnace, his voice held enough heat to melt iron. It didn't know what he could do, but felt that it would probably prefer not to find out. "'What did you call me?' Mort hissed. The door-knocker thought quickly. "'Fur?' it said. "'What did you ask me to do?' "'Unstick me?' "'I don't intend to.' "'Fine,' said the door-locker. "'Fine, that's okay by me. I'll just stick around then.' 
It watched Mort canter off along the street and shuddered with relief, knocking itself gently in its nervousness. A narrow squeak, said one of the hinges. Shut up. Mort passed the night watchman, whose job now appeared to consist of ringing bells and shouting the name of the princess, but a little uncertainly, as if they had difficulty remembering it. He ignored them, because he was listening to voices inside his head, which went, "'She's only met you once, you fool. Why should she bother about you?' "'Yes, but I did save her life. That means it belongs to her, not to you. Besides, he's a wizard.' "'So what? Wizards aren't supposed to... to... to go out with girls. They're celebrate.' Celebrate? They're not supposed to, you know. What, never any, you know, at all, said the internal voice, and it sounded as if it was grinning. It's supposed to be bad for the magic, thought Mort bitterly. Funny place to keep magic. Mort was shocked. Who are you? he demanded. I'm you, Mort, your inner self. Well, I wish I'd get out of my head. It's quite crowded enough with me in here. Fair enough, said the voice. I was only trying to help. But remember, if you ever need you, you're always around. The voice faded away. Well, thought Mort bitterly, it must have been me. I'm the only one that calls me Mort. The shock of the realisation quite obscured the fact that while Mort had been locked into the monologue, he had ridden right through the gates of the palace. Of course, people rode through the gates of the palace every day, but most of them needed the things to be opened first. The guards on the other side were rigid with fear because they thought they'd seen a ghost. They would have been far more frightened if they'd known that a ghost was almost exactly what they hadn't seen. The guard outside the doors of the great hall had seen it happen too, but he had time to gather his wits, or such that remained, and raise his spear as Binky trotted across the courtyard. "'Halt!' he croaked. "'Halt! What goes where?' Mort saw him for the first time. "'What?' he said, still lost in thought. The guard ran his tongue over his dry lips and backed away. Mort slid off Binky's back and walked forward. I meant, well, what goes there? The guard tried again with a mixture of doggedness and suicidal stupidity that marked him for early promotion. Mort caught the spear gently and lifted it out of the way of the door. As he did so, the torchlight illuminated his face. Mort, he said softly. It should have been enough for any normal soldier, but this guard was officer material. I mean, friend or foe, he stuttered, trying to avoid Mort's gaze. Which would you prefer, he grinned. It wasn't quite the grin of his master, but it was a pretty effective grin and didn't have a trace of humour in it. The guard sagged with relief and stood aside. Pass, friend, he said. Mort strode across the hall towards the staircase that led to the royal apartments. The hall had changed a lot since he last saw it. Portraits of Kay Lee were everywhere, They'd even replaced the ancient and crumbling battle banners in the shadowy heights of the roof. Anyone walking through the palace would have found it impossible to go more than a few steps without seeing a portrait. Part of Mort's mind wondered why, just as another part worried about the flickering dome that was steadily closing on the city. But most of his mind was a hot and steamy glow of rage and bewilderment and jealousy. Isabel had been right, he thought. This must be love. The walk through walls, boy! He jerked his head up. Cutwell was standing at the top of the stairs. The wizard had changed a lot, too, Mort thought bitterly. Perhaps not that much, though. Although he was wearing a black and white robe embroidered with sequins, although his pointy hat was a yard high and decorated with more mystic symbols than a dental chart, 
and although his red velvet shoes had silver buckles and toes that curled like snails, there were still a few stains on his collar, and he appeared to be chewing. He watched Mort climb the stairs towards him. "'Are you angry about something?' he said. "'I started work, but I got rather tied up with other things. Very difficult walking through. Why are you looking at me like that?' "'What are you doing here?' I might ask you the same question. Would you like a strawberry? Mort glanced at the small wooden punnet in the wizard's hands. In midwinter? Actually, they sprouts with a dash of enchantment. They taste like strawberries? Cutwell sighed. No, like sprouts. The spell isn't totally efficient. I thought they might cheer the princess up, but she threw them at me. Shame to waste them. Be my guest? Mort gaped at him. She threw them at you? Very accurately, I'm afraid. Very strong-minded young lady. Hi, said a voice in the back of Mort's mind. It's you again, pointing out to yourself that the chances of the princess even contemplating you know with this fellow are on the far side of remote. Go away, thought Mort. His subconscious was worrying him. It appeared to have a direct line into parts of his body that he wanted to ignore at the moment. Why are you here? he said aloud. Is it something to do with all these pictures? Good idea, wasn't it? beamed Cutwell. I'm rather proud of it myself. Excuse me, said Mort weakly. I've had a busy day. I think I'd like to sit down somewhere. There's the throne room, said Cutwell. There's no one there at this time of night. Everyone's asleep. Mort nodded and then looked suspiciously at the young wizard. What are you doing up then? he said. Um said Cutwell. Um, I just thought I'd see if there was anything in the pantry. He shrugged. There had been half a jar of elderly mayonnaise, a piece of very old cheese, and a tomato with white mould growing on it. Since during the day the pantry of the Palace of Stolat normally contained fifteen whole stags, one hundred brace of partridges, fifty hogsheads of butter, two hundred jugs of hares, seventy-five sides of beef, two miles of assorted sausages, various fowls, eighty dozen eggs, several circle-sea sturgeon, a vat of caviar and an elephant's leg stuffed with olives, Cutwell had learned once again that one universal manifestation of raw natural magic through the universe is this, that any domestic food store raided furtively in the middle of the night always contains, no matter what its daytime inventory, half a jar of elderly mayonnaise, a piece of very old cheese, and a tomato with white mould growing on it. Now is the time to report that Cutwell too notices that Mort, even a Mort weary with riding and lack of sleep, is somehow glowing from within and in some strange way unconnected with size, is nevertheless larger than life. The difference is that Cutwell is by training a better guesser than other people and knows that in occult manners the obvious answer is usually the wrong one. Mort can move absent-mindedly through walls and drink neat widow-maker soberly, not because he is turning into a ghost, but because he is becoming dangerously real. In fact, as the boy stumbles while they walk along the silent corridors and steps through a marble pillar without noticing, it's obvious that the world is becoming a pretty insubstantial place from his point of view. You just walked through a marble pillar, observed Cutwell. How did you do it? Did I? Mort looked round. The pillar looked sound enough. He poked an arm towards it and slightly bruised his elbow. I could have sworn you did, said Cutwell. Wizards notice these things, you know. He reached into the pocket of his robe. Then have you noticed the mist dome around the country, said Mort. 
Cutwell squeaked. The jar in his hand dropped and smashed on the tiles, and there was the smell of slightly rancid salad dressing. Already? I don't know about already, said Mort, but there's this sort of crackling wall sliding over the land and no one else seems to worry about it, and how fast was it moving? It changes things. You saw it? How far away is it? How fast is it moving? Of course I saw it. I rode through it twice. It was like... But you're not a wizard, so why? What are you doing here anyway? Cutwell took a deep breath. Everyone shut up, he screamed. There was silence. Then the wizard grabbed Mort's arm. Come on, he said, pulling him back along the corridor. I don't know who you are exactly, and I hope I've got time to find out one day, but something really horrible is going to happen soon, and I think you're involved somehow. Something horrible? When? That depends on how far away the interface is and how fast it's moving, said Cutwell, dragging Mort down a side passage. When they were outside a small oak door, he let go of his arm and fumbled in his pocket again, removing a small hard piece of cheese and an unpleasantly squashy tomato. All these, will you? Thank you. He delved again, produced a key, and unlocked the door. It's going to kill the princess, isn't it? said Mort. Yes, said Cutwell. And then again, no. He paused with his hand on the door handle. That was pretty perspicacious of you. How did you know? I... Mort hesitated. She told me a very strange story, said Cutwell. I expect she did, said Mort. If it was unbelievable, it was true. You are him, are you? Death's assistant? Yes. Off duty at the moment, though. Pleased to hear it. Cutwell shut the door behind them and fumbled for a candlestick. There was a pop, a flash of blue light and a whimper. Sorry, he said, sucking his fingers. Fire spell. Never really got the hang of it. You were expecting the dome thing, weren't you? said Mort urgently. What will happen when it closes in? The wizard sat down heavily on the remains of a bacon sandwich. I'm not exactly sure, he said. It'll be interesting to watch, but not from inside, I'm afraid. What I think will happen is that the last week will never have existed. She'll suddenly die. You don't quite understand. She will have been dead for a week. All this, he waved his hands vaguely in the air, will not have happened. The assassin will have done his job. You will have done yours. History will have healed itself. Everything will be all right. From history's point of view, that is. There really isn't any other. Mort stared out of the narrow window. He could see across the courtyard into the glowing streets outside, where a picture of the princess smiled at the sky. Tell me about the pictures, he said. That looks like some sort of wizard thing. I'm not sure if it's working. You see, people were beginning to get upset and they didn't know why and that made it worse. Their minds were in one reality and their bodies were in another. Very unpleasant. They couldn't get used to the idea that she was still alive. I thought the pictures might be a good idea, but, you know, people just don't see what their mind tells them isn't there. I could have told you that, said Mort, bitterly. I had the town criers out during the daytime, Cutwell continued. I thought that if people could come to believe her, then this new reality could become the real one. Hm, said Mort. He turned away from the window. What do you mean? Well, you see, I reckon that if enough people believed in her, they could change reality. It works for gods. If people stop believing in a god, he dies. If a lot of them believe in him, he grows stronger. I didn't know that. I thought gods were just gods. They don't like it talked about, said Cutwell, shuffling through the heap of books and parchments on his work table. Well, 
That might work for gods because they're special, said Mort. People are more solid. It wouldn't work for people. That's not true. Let's suppose you went out of here and prowled around the palace. One of the guards would probably see you and he'd think you were a thief and he'd fire his crossbow. I mean, in his reality, you'd be a thief. It wouldn't actually be true, but you'd be just as dead as if it was. Belief is powerful stuff. I'm a wizard. We know about these things. Look, here. He pulled a book out of the debris in front of him and opened it at the piece of bacon he'd used as a bookmark. Mort looked over his shoulder and frowned at the curly, magical writing. It moved around on the page, twisting and writhing in an attempt not to be read by a non-wizard, and the general effect was unpleasant. What's this? he said. It's the book of the magic of Alberto Malik, the mage, said the wizard. A sort of book of magical theory. It's not a good idea to look too hard to the words, they resent it. Look, it says here... His lips moved soundlessly. Little beads of sweat sprang up on his forehead and decided to get together and go down and see what his nose was doing. His eyes watered. Some people like to settle down with a good book. No one in possession of a complete set of marbles would like to settle down with a book of magic, because even the individual words have a private and vindictive life of their own, and reading them, in short, is a kind of mental Indian wrestling. Many a young wizard has tried to read a grimoire that is too strong for him, and people who've heard the screams have found only his pointy shoes with the classic wisp of smoke coming out of them, and a book which is perhaps just a little fatter. Things can happen to browsers in magical libraries that make having your face pulled off by tentacled monstrosities from the dungeon dimensions seem a mere light massage by comparison. Fortunately, Cutwell had an expurgated edition, with some of the more distressing pages clamped shut, although on quiet nights he could hear the imprisoned words scritching irritably inside their prison, like a spider trapped in a matchbox. Anyone who has ever sat next to someone wearing a Walkman will be able to imagine exactly what they sounded like. This is the bit, said Cutwell. It says here that even gods... I've seen him before. What? Mort pointed a shaking finger at the book. Him. Cutwell gave him an odd look and examined the left-hand page. There was a picture of an elderly wizard holding a book and a candlestick in an attitude of near-terminal dignity. That's not part of the magic, he said testily. That's just the author. What does it say under the picture? Uh, it says, If you have enjoyed this book, you may be interested in other titles by. No, right under the picture is what I meant. Oh, that's easy. It's old Malik himself. Every wizard knows him. I mean, he founded the university. Cutwell chuckled. There's a famous statue of him in the main hall, and during rag week once I climbed up it and put a... Mort stared at the picture. Tell me, he said quietly, did the statue ever drip on the end of its nose? I shouldn't think so, said Cutwell. It was marble. But I don't know what you're getting so worked up about. Lots of people know what he looked like. He's famous. He lived a long time ago, did he? Two thousand years, I think. Look, I don't know why... I bet he didn't die, though, said Mort. I bet he just... Disappeared one day, did he? Cutwell was silent for a moment. Funny you should say that, he said slowly. There was a legend I heard. He got up to some strange weird things, they say. They say he blew himself into the dungeon dimensions while trying to perform the rite of Ash-Kente backwards. 
All they found was his hat. Tragic, really. The whole city in mourning for a day just for a hat. It wasn't even a particularly attractive hat. It had burn marks on it. Alberto Malik, said Mort, half to himself. Well, fancy that. He drummed his fingers on the table, although the sound was surprisingly muted. Sorry, said Cutwell, I can't get the hang of treacle sandwiches either. I reckon the interface is moving at a slow walking pace, said Mort, licking his fingers absent-mindedly. Can't you stop it by magic? Cutwell shook his head. Not me. It'd squash me flat, he said cheerfully. What'll happen to you when it arrives, then? Oh, I'll go back to living in Wall Street. I mean, I never will have left. All this won't have happened. Pity, though. The cooking here is pretty good, and they do my laundry for free. How far away did you say it was, by the way? About twenty miles, I guess. Cutwell rolled his eyes heavenwards and moved his lips. Eventually, he said, That means it'll arrive around midnight tomorrow, just in time for the coronation. Whose? Hers. But she's queen already, isn't she? In a way, but officially she's not queen until she's crowned. Cutwell grinned, his face a pattern of shade in the candlelight, and added, If you want a way of thinking about it, then it's like the difference between stopping living and being dead. Twenty minutes earlier, Mort had been feeling tired enough to take root. Now he could feel a fizzing in his blood. It was the kind of late-night frantic energy that you knew you would pay for around midday tomorrow, but for now he felt he had to have some action, or else his muscles would snap out of sheer vitality. I want to see her, he said. If you can't do anything, there might be something I can do. There's guards outside their room, said Cutwell. I mention this merely as an observation. I don't imagine for one minute that they'll make the slightest difference. It was midnight in Ark Moorpork. But in the great twin city, the only difference between night and day was, well, it was darker. The markets were thronged, the spectators were still thickly clustered around the whore-pits, runners-up in the city's eternal and Byzantine gang warfare drifted silently down through the chilly waters of the river with lead weights tied to their feet. Dealers in various illegal and even illogical delights plied their sidelong trade. Burglars burgled, knives flashed starlight in alleyways, Astrologers started their day's work, and in the shades a night watchman who had lost his way rang his bell and cried out, Twelve o'clock and all's... Ah! However, the Ankh-Morpork Chamber of Commerce would not be happy at the suggestion that the only real difference between their city and a swamp is the number of legs on the alligators, and indeed in the more select areas of Ankh, which tend to be in the hilly districts where there is a chance of a bit of wind... The nights are gentle and scented with hibiscine and cecilia blossoms. On this particular night they were scented with saltpetre too, because it was the tenth anniversary of the accession of the patrician, and he had invited a few friends round for a drink, five hundred of them in this case, and was letting off fireworks. Ankh Morpork had dallied with many forms of government, and had ended up with that form of democracy known as one man, one vote. The patrician was the man... He had the vote. Laughter and the occasional gurgle of passion filled the palace gardens, and the evening had just got to that interesting stage where everyone had drunk too much for their own good, but not enough actually to fall over. It is the kind of state in which one does things that one will recall with crimson shame in later life, such as blowing through a paper squeaker and laughing so much that one is sick. 
In fact, some 200 of the patricians' guests were now staggering and kicking their way through the serpent dance, a quaint, more porkian folkway which consisted of getting rather drunk, holding the waist of the person in front, and then wobbling and giggling uproariously in a long crocodile that wound through as many rooms as possible, preferably ones with breakables in, while kicking one leg vaguely in time with the beat, or at least in time with some other beat. This dance had gone on for half an hour and had wound through every room in the palace, picking up two trolls, one cook, the patrician's head torturer, three waiters, a burglar who happened to be passing, and a small pet swamp dragon. Somewhere around the middle of the dance was fat Lord Rodley of Quirm, heir to the fabulous Quirm estates, whose current preoccupation was with the thin fingers gripping his waist. Under its bath of alcohol his brain kept trying to attract his attention. I say, he called over his shoulder as they oscillated for the tenth hilarious time through the enormous kitchen. Not so tight, please. I am most terribly sorry. No offence, old chap. Do I know you? said Lord Rodley, kicking vigorously on the backbeat. I think it unlikely. Tell me, please, what is the meaning of this activity? What? shouted Lord Rodley above the sound of someone kicking in the door of a glass cabinet amid shrieks of merriment. "'What is the thing that we do?' said the voice, with glacial patience. "'Haven't you been to a party before? Mind the glass, by the way?' "'I'm afraid I do not get out as much as I would like to. Please explain this. Does it have to do with sex?' "'Not unless we pull up sharp, old boy, if you know what I mean,' said his lordship, and nudged his unseen fellow guest with his elbow. "'Ouch!' he said. A crash up ahead marked the demise of the cold buffet. No. What? I do not know what you mean. Mind the cream there, it's slippery. Look, it's just a dance, all right. You do it for fun. Fun? That's right. Da-da-da-da-da, kick. There was an audible pause. End of CD 4